0: Listener production. You are listening to episode eight of the Howie Games, Part B, featuring Lonely Planet founder Tony Wheeler. Let's get back on the bus, eh? We'll talk um, if you'll indulge me a bit more about about the business itself and how it grew and 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 how you approached that and how you succeeded in that. But let's just talk some let's just talk some travel for a bit. Tony, how many? Um, you've probably lost count. How many countries do you reckon you've been to?
1: Uh, well over a hundred. Um, you know, I know, and that, let's not get into this tech stuff. You know, there are people who who try to try, try to go to every country on earth. You know, and there's 192 or 193 in the UN, and then there's others. You know, Taiwan. I, I think it was. Um, mothers of invention Frank Zappa who said to be a yes. to be a country you need a football team and a beer. You know there was something else. <laughs> yeah, I like it. And, and an airline, I think. You know, so on on, yeah. on that respect, or a currency, there were he had three rules anyway that made you a country. <laughs> and you know, Taiwan ticks all the boxes. You know, it's got an airline, <laughs> it's got a beer, it's got it's got money, it's got a football team. Hasn't got a place in the UN, so because um, no. China's got that. So you know, a lot yes. of people, some some people, the um, the lawyers will say, "Oh, it's not a country; that doesn't count." But anyway, you know, that people who like going to a lot of countries will list two hundred or two hundred and thirty or something. Oh, that's a lot. It is a lot, yeah. And I, I've been to well over a hundred of them,
0: yeah. Okay, so it doesn't matter if it takes a bit for this to spring into my, your mind, try and tell me a brief story around the following things. Um, tell me about a meal that you've had somewhere that was different.
1: I've been a few places where the grasshoppers are nicely fried and um,
0: they'll <laughs> okay, argue about whether they're start. better with
1: rice or noodles.
0: Take your mind back to a interesting transport whether it was a plane a bus a boat, a car <laughs> a cart <laughs> a hitchhiking experience because that, that's that's often the the funnest part isn't it getting into a, a transport situation where you go I can't believe this is happening
1: I, I've got a friend in um, in London who is a journalist who's a great believer in hitchhiking and you know yes. he's always sort of saying when he last hitched a ride and you know, he'll ask me periodically and actually, Well, we haven't done much travel in this last year. Actually, no, Mm. no, you know, I had a great hitchhiking experience um, just over a year ago in Australia. Um, I was up in the Torres Strait Islands. I I did a book for the National Library called, I can see a copy of it in front of me over here called Tony Wheeler's Islands of Australia. It's a coffee table. So it's a coffee table book, you know, a big photographic book done done for the National Library. and um there it is. There oh, it it's is. It's a beautiful looking book. It's a beautiful book. Yeah, right. Now they sold lots of Christmas present copies of it. Um I went up Good. to Torres Strait and I had a very interesting time there. It's easy enough to get to Torres Strait. You can fly from island to island on little planes. But it's really hard to get the permissions. You need you need permission from the local um Torres Strait Islander Council to visit their islands and they don't hand them out very readily. But I was on one island, and um, this particular island, and I'm, the name's gone out of my head right now, but um, it was where the first missionaries arrived in the Torres Strait. And there's no public transport. There are no taxis. There's no buses. So when you arrive at the airport, you're really dependent upon hitching a ride with somebody else who's come to pick somebody up, which you did do. Anyway, I, I, um, I went into town, and there's always a council guest house. So I went to the council office, and paid the money for a couple of nights in the guest house and got the key to the um, council guest house. And I'm walking back to the kilometre down the road and some guy picks me up in a Hilux and um, he's, so I'm hitched a ride with him. And um, he says, um, you know, what are you going to do while you're here? And I said, well, I'm going to go out and see where the first missionaries arrived. There's a monument on the beach. And he said, how are you going to get there? And I said, I'm going to, um, oh, you know, I said, I'll start walking. It's only five kilometers and somebody will probably pick me up like you. And he said, he said, mm. I get back from work at 1230. He said, I live just beyond the, um, beyond the guest house. I'll leave my car in the driveway with the keys in it. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Take my car. <laughs> so I've, I've hitched a ride and I've been given the guy's car, you know. Now, how often does that happen
0: to you? But this is the thing about hitchhiking. People say when you say to people, you know, you've spent time hitchhiking in Africa or where, where yeah. you're talking about uh, up in uh, towards the Torres Strait. People say, "Oh, is it dangerous?" And and I no. I guess there is a risk. But I've always felt from my experiences the reward of the people you meet yeah. and your ability to embed yourself into a country or a community. Is is by far and away worth any perceived risk?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, let's face it. You know, hitchhiking. When I was, I'm probably lived through a golden age of hitchhiking. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, when when I I was at university in England, I used to, if I went home to see my parents, I hitchhiked. You know, that was how I got back and forth. Um, you know, and then a bit later on, when I was. you know, <laughs> had my own car now. I used to always pick up hitchhikers, you know because mm. there was a lot more of them around and the the three places I mean England in those days, if I was driving up the motorway, you'd there'd always be somebody hitchhiking at the slip road entering the motorway, and I'd always pick them up um, and then i I spent quite a bit of time going around New Zealand working on Lonely Planet guides and i and there were lots of hitchhikers in New Zealand in those days. And I always picked them up because they were young people who were doing the right sort of travel, and I could say, "Well, where did you stay? What was the best restaurant?" You know, okay, so it's research, it's research. Best, best research. You know, they they were they were paying for their rides, and the other place where I picked up a lot of hitchhikers, and again, it was Lonely Planet research, was Ireland. Ireland was full of hitchhikers in those days. So yeah, <laughs> I've, I've you know I've done a lot of hitchhiking, and and, and you know in the most recent time apart from Torres Strait is also. Just before the pandemic, I was in Armenia, um, really interesting country. and I, right, I haven't been there. Oh, amazing place. I was really, I, I had a couple of Armenian friends and as a result, I drank a lot of vodka. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they make it themselves, you know. <laughs> oh, nice. But, I, but I, I, I rented a car and I drove around the country. I didn't pick up any hitch. I did. I did pick up a hitch- I could. Picked up one in Vanuatu a year or two. <laughs> Keep on picking them up. Anyway, but in Armenia, um, there was one place I went walking, and I walked, you know, five or ten k's out of town, and then I had to get back to the town. So I hitchhiked, and somebody picked me up and gave me a ride, and he he spoke a little bit of English, and yeah, very nice. <laughs> what do you say? Yeah, I hitched. I hitched so, a, so, a few rides.
0: So so that's that's travel. The other reason. Well, one of the reasons, the main reasons I travel, I guess, is I love natural formations, for want of a better term. So, to me, things that have blown me away have been the sand dunes in Namibia recently, with my kids going up Acatenango in Guatemala, Iguazu Falls in Brazil. So, so th- things like that, the the salt deserts in Bolivia. What has what? natural phenomenon has made an impact on you on your travels where you've just sat there you know when you have that that awe thinking wow this is just blowing my mind I didn't know that this could be
1: yeah okay I've I've done a lot of walking in Nepal you know I've I've walked up to the Everest base camp I've I've walked the Annapurna circuit I've I've walked up to the border with uh, up to the border with China Tibet and on on into Tibet. And, you know, I, I often think that there's those, you, you set up camp. It's really dark by the time you get there and you, um, don't really sort of see what's around you. And in the morning, you sort of wake up and open the tent flaps and you go, wow, you know, I didn't realize that mountain was yeah. right in front of me, you know, ah, <laughs> oh, just, you know, views that you would, you would die for. Um, yeah, that. And I've I think of a lot of them as sort of, oh, wow moments. Um, and you know, as you say, sand dunes. Um we were in the, the Sahara once, um, being driven around by a Tuareg um guy and his land cruiser and you know In, in which country? In um in Libya. Right down in the In south. Libya, right? Yeah, right down in the one of one of these oh, little moments when the you the places you can get into it and then you know and then war mm. breaks out and it's all gone down the gurgler um yeah but yeah i'm in mean, libya and you know those it was it was amazing this guy knew his way and we had no idea where we were at all you know it was just sand and sand and sand and then suddenly we come over this sand dune and there's a little you know like a child's view of what an oasis should look like this sort of little ah. blue lake with the palm trees beside it you know and, We'd seen nothing for 20 kilometres except sand, 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 and this guy knew where it was and, you know, took us there. It was jazz wonderful, wonderful.
0: So at what stage did this little uh, guidebook business that you and Maureen were working on start to morph into the gigantic global phenomenon that it
1: became? Well, you know, it was not, I, I've often said to people that, it wasn't like those, you know, these dot-com businesses that...
0: Just go bang.
1: And they're, they're worth a billion dollars the next week. You know, that, that wasn't... We were, we were more like... I, I've i often said it's like that we were like the snowball, you know, that you have to push it at first and then it starts to roll and gets bigger and bigger. But it isn't instantly big. Um, and we weren't, you know. We did, we did two books that I wrote. The first ten books we did, I wrote five of them, um, you know and then more other writers came and more more went but it was really when we got to about twenty books by which time we had a little office and we had um, two or three people that's that's as many as we had and um we decided to do a guidebook on India and it was a much bigger book than anything we'd done previously and looking to see if I can see a copy on the shelves here. Yeah, there yeah there's one up there um, and um we decided to do a book on India, and it was a much bigger book than anything we'd done in the past, and, you know, we'd, we hadn't been able to afford to do anything big.
0: And so the art of writing a travel information book, let's say, for example, let's use, um, okay, uh, Lima, and we're in Peru, right? Yeah. And you, 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 you arrive in Lima, and you you want to give a recommendation, which you guys typically do. I don't know, twenty restaurants and fifteen different accommodations. Like, how do you do it? Like, you can well, go to the restaurants. So I get that, but like, how do you compile? It? And do you have to stay in every hotel, or do you just go and have a poke
1: around? Like, what what do you do? Have yeah, a poke around, yeah. Um, you know, further down the line, the, the book had been done. You know, there was, this is the next edition, so it isn't the same thing. And you've got and. You know, you've had other other people have written to you and said you should put this in, you should put that in. And, you know, you, you've got some experience by now. You know where to start looking. Um, I've always said the first thing you do anywhere is you get out and you walk around, you know, walking mm. from place to place is what tells you about things. But, um, you know, it's experience, a lot of it's experience. Um, and with a, with a new place, you know, I'd... I'd You'd hardly go anywhere without having some idea. And these days, you know, you just pick your phone up and the information's there. But back in the yeah. old days, that information wasn't there. And you really did depend upon meeting people and talking to them. know, just you dragged it up from all over the place.
0: And what happens when uh, you know, when the the hotel in Lima you know, had dodgy plumbing or a rat or a train line outside it and you write that, do you ever get feedback from using that example, the hotel outside in Lima saying, hey, 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 what are you, you know, you haven't written about us very nicely here? Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. How do you deal with that? What What happens then, Tone? I
1: mean, it, it, we were talking earlier on about, you know, cheap hotels in Singapore and you know, yes. they, they, they've they all gone, you know, they they were old Chinese hotels that had been sort of become places for Western travellers, backpackers, and then they just disappeared because Singapore, everything was redeveloped and, you know, backpacker hostels developed and it was a, a different story. But those those old Chinese hotels, some of them, you know, did the one we used to stay in, there were no rats there, but lots of them did have the odd rodent. You know, they were, it was part of yeah. the story. And I remember we... Um, we said about one hotel you know there well if if everything else is clo- is full there was always this one which um there was one i remember it was it was called the archu it was said it was nothing to sneeze about a h c a g w okay anyway, i don't know how good the archu was but there was one which we said you know if nothing else is going there's this one but you let's face it you will see the odd mouse. and um this immediately the next, you know, we had seminars. No, we there's no that one's fine, but the one next door, oh, they they were rodents of unusual size in the one next door. A <laughs> tone, frequent listeners to this
0: podcast will know that I have two young children. Um, age 9 and 11, and I always tell them about the guest and then uh, the person that has a connection with that guest and, and is interested asks a question. Now, So you get the question now from my 11-year-old daughter called, her name is Sky, but she operates, her nickname, we're big on nicknames in this house, Tony, is The Pickle. Okay? So are you, are you ready for the question from The Pickle, who's privileged to have seen a nice amount of the world? Are you ready?
1: Yes, yes.
0: Hi, Tony. Pickle here. We always read your Lonely Planet books. They're super cool and it helps us know where to eat, where to go and where
1: to surf. And I like writing. So what I want to know is how do you become a Lonely Planet writer? (laughs) Good question. (laughs) Um, There you go. Well, you know, uh, uh, when we first started, it was just anybody who popped up and said, you know, I know this place and I could write about it and, They'd show us a page of writing. We said, oh, you can write a little bit. Um, and off you go. But um, later on, you know, it became much more serious. And people who wanted to be, you know, if you wanted to be the lonely planet, one of the lonely planet writers in China, you know, you spoke one of the Chinese dialects. You spoke Mandarin or Cantonese or something. You know, that was the that was the first thing. If you didn't speak, if you didn't speak something Chinese, you didn't get it, you didn't get a start. Mm. You know, some places you go to India and you don't have to speak Hindi to, to research a guidebook to India. But if you're researching a guidebook to somewhere in Latin America, you have to speak Spanish or Portuguese, or at least at the very least, get by on it. Um uh, so you know, look, linguistics are certainly um something. But the um uh, and the other, but we've got lots of more well, lone. I say we, you know, I'm 10 years away yeah. from it now, but I keep thinking of it as mine. <laughs> you know, Lonely Planet Writers. A lot of them, you know, were really serious about it. They wanted to write on Southeast Asia. They studied Southeast Asian history or politics or culture or whatever university. They they got into it that way. But a lot of it really was, you know, being in the place. You know, you you know, why why should we use you to write our Armenia guide. Well, you know, I, I lived in Armenia for three years and worked on the local Armenian English language newspaper or, you know, I, I had some sort of connection there. So experience, you know, experience counts for a lot. For if you want to be writing travel guides, the first thing is to travel, you know, get out there and, and travel. Convince me that you've been lots of places and know what you're doing. So she's doing the right thing. She's travelling. Good.
0: She is. She's she's a very lucky young lady. She's got the first
1: foot in the door.
0: Okay. I'll let her know that. I'll let her know that. She'll be good at it. She's quite um, resourceful. Let's get back to Tony. So at its biggest, before you sold it, how many books were you pumping out? How many people did you have out on the road? And... My heavens! Like we we're getting phone calls from old mate in Bolivia saying this has happened here, and then the next day a bloke rings you from Zaire and I've got a problem here. Like the, the scale of what you were doing, how big and consuming was it?
1: It's you know now the thing like TripAdvisor, you know the emails and clicks are popping in all the time. And we of course we didn't have that when we started, but people started writing to us right away, and you know you know if people spend the the effort to get a postcard out and write you know you should really recommend these five restaurants and buy a stamp and send it to you they've got to like what you're doing they're doing that because they they want to help it get better and contribute to it so you know we had that sort of feedback immediately um mm-hmm. and then people you know we we just grew like i think at one time we we had a the, the, the main office in melbourne but we also had an office in the san francisco bay area and we had an office in London. And for a while we had an office in Paris. Um, you know, Jeez. Yeah, that was a bad idea. It's a lot of fun. Paris, I went, and lived in Paris for a year and worked out of the office every day. It was great, but I um, mean, it didn't make any money. <laughs> it was okay. a, financially, it was a bad idea. Um, but, um, do you know, there we had, um, probably at the top about 500 people around the world, you know, <sighs> start st- staff. And then there probably at any time there had been a hundred more than a hundred writers out on the roads, you know, researching things. So it was a it was a big thing, you know. And that, and we were selling millions of books every year. I don't I don't know what the figure is now. I mean, I, I use Lonely I still when I'm travelling, I still use Lonely Planet guides, but I generally use them on a tablet.
0: I read that by two thousand you you sold out I think in two thousand
1: and seven. Yeah, something like that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I read it was estimated in 2011. By that stage, it had been 120 million books sold in 2000. That's big numbers, Tony. It's
1: a lot of books, yeah. But you consider each one, there's more than one person using it. You know, yes. it's usually a couple or something, you know, the book's are handed back and forth. Oh,
0: there is nothing better when you've come through Europe and down through Syria and Jordan in Egypt and you've arrived in Africa and you meet the bloke going the other way and he's got the African only planet and you've got the Middle Eastern and you swap and you know, when yeah. you're on a budget, it's the best thing in the world. <laughs>
1: it's true, it's true. Yeah, yeah. I mean they, they they were they were good things, you know. I I enjoyed that I when we can all travel again, I'll enjoy using them again.
0: So've we've, we've talked about, and you've kept me entertained and I've loved this discussion. we've talked about from, from one guidebook to you know 120 million plus books and 500 staff. What, what did you learn about business along the way? and that you could take three hours to answer that. But, but what what did you learn about the keys to a successful business were and scaling up at the speed you did?
1: Well, we didn't scale up the speed, you know. We 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 grew steadily. Um, okay, I think you know doing the right things. Uh, it, I, I've often said, you know, the toughest times. It's not when the business is really small, because when a business is really small, you know, who've got to, it's only yourself you've got to worry about. You've got to, you know, if you don't make enough money this week, you don't eat very well at the weekend. Um, but as soon as you got staff. Then come Thursday, you've got to have money in the bank to pay them mm. on Friday morning. And um, that, that's really di- that most difficult time is when you've only got a handful of staff. When you have, you know, if you're 10, 20, by then you're big enough to have bank accounts. And, you know, if you, things are really tough one week, if you've got a good relations with the bank, you can, you know, get something going for the next week. But when it's re- it's that sort of not really small and not big, what, what do they say? You know, if you if you you owe the bank a thousand dollars and you can't pay, you're in trouble. And if you owe the bank a million dollars and you can't pay, the bank's in trouble. You know, it's um,
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get it. <laughs> yeah, there,
1: there's a there's that period in between <laughs> between a thousand and a million, which is you know can be difficult. But you know, one of the things that when when the company was really small, and there were those times when um, when know there were you were really pushed for money that week and you know you, you know books are like any other business you know people you you try and put off paying your bills a bit if things are tight and bookshops are like that but um we found that we we people bookshops you know we were nice to them they liked our books they knew the people who came in and bought the books liked the books that we had a good mm. relationship, and you know, and if we could, if we were really short of money that week, I could ring up a bookshop and say, "Look, you know, your your bill's a little bit over. You know, it should have been paid two weeks ago. We really need some money this week. Could I just drive over and pick up a check?" And you know, they'd huh. say, "Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll put off we'll put off Penguin and um, Random House and <laughs> Collins or whatever. <laughs> uh, you know, and we'll we'll pay you." Um, and that was sort of. Good relations. having and I, you know, amazingly, it carried on way longer on. I'd often meet people who would say, you know, I really like working. You know, by then, you know, I wasn't selling the books anymore. That we we had salespeople and staff and a warehouse and God knows what else. They still liked dealing with us because we had we had nice people working for us, and they were nice. They were nice to the businesses they dealt with, and as a result, they were treated nicely. So, yeah, be nice.
0: <laughs> I, I love it. I, 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 I love it. We, we can't, obviously, it's a first world problem, but my great frustration with COVID and it's it's selfish and it is a very much a first world problem and I appreciate that is the fact that my, my life is divided into a winter and summer sporting season and we've been privileged enough in the gaps to take our young family to see the world and obviously we can't do that at the moment, which I find incredibly, incredibly frustrating. And hopefully we can do that soon. If you had to, and this might be like saying which is your favorite child, I don't know, Tony. If you had to say to someone, if you had to say to me, this is the one country I would recommend you go to for whatever reason.
1: Oh, look, I, I hate, you know, I hate to. I said before, you know, I've, I've done a lot of walking in Nepal and, you know, I, I like walking, and there was a. Quite a long time, where, if I, there wasn 't at some point in the year i didn 't spend a week on a long walk, I felt like that wasn 't a really good year and uh, you know i 've done lots of weeks in nepal, so if i 'm going to go walking I, you know Australia has great walks there 's all mm. sorts of great walks in europe i 've done a lot of walking in England, but Nepal is sort of the the world headquarters for really good walking um, i've i 've been to Africa fifty plus countries. You now, Lonely Planet had, still has the, probably the only guidebook to all of Africa. But I've been to more than half of them. I've been to more than 25 of those 50 countries and I've had really interest, interesting as well as good. Some of them, you know, they were a bit tricky but they were still interesting. But I've had really good times in Africa. I've really enjoyed Africa. And
0: Where? If, if you had to say, because to me, Africa is you know i've been lucky to take my family there that's to me is one of the last adventurous places in the world where where in africa's really got in your guts
1: oh i you know the place that um is tricky and and i've only been there once and i, but I did travel around a bit was the congo congo drc you yeah, know and it's right. a it's a tricky place and you know i wouldn't recommend it to not you know if you're going to go first time to africa go to Kenya, you know, Kenya, lots of Tanzania. Yeah. Now you get to do you want to see the wildlife in Africa? You see the wildlife. You want to climb a mountain, Kilimanjaro is waiting for you. Um yes. but Congo, it was um, Was it wild? Was it was it, yeah, was it, it was, Africa, edgy Africa? It was edgy Africa, yeah. No, I did see gorillas there, so you know that's a that's wildlife Africa. It's a wonderful experience. Climbed an amazing volcano, one that erupted just a month or two ago. Um <laughs> And um, it, oh, it was it was sort of erupting when I was there. It's one of those volcanoes that's always putting on a show. Um, you just don't want to be there when it puts on a big show. Um, but <laughs> but also it was a place where you did sort of look over your shoulders. And I got arrested once. If you don't get arrested in the Congo, you haven't been in the Congo. What'd you do? I took a photograph, and they they really don't like you taking photographs of things. And
0: no, was it of a of a municipal building or no?
1: It was just a interesting looking bar. Um, they was right. The, um, yeah, and um, I, I was sort of surreptitious, but I still got arrested. And I know, you know, I'm taken round to the police station and sat watching football with the police commander for a while, <laughs> and then.
0: That doesn't sound too bad.
1: And I, you know, it was it was the Congo playing um, Senegal or something. And I, <laughs> I, every time the Congo won,
0: I <laughs> <laughs> come on Senegal. Well, as I said, I've taken uh, up enough your home. time. <laughs> a, a couple more questions, and I'll I'll leave you to your day. When you have packed your bag and you've got on the plane and you've got off, and whether it's a backpack these days or a suitcase and you're stepping into a place you haven't been before do you still get that excitement how does it make you feel when you are back on the road and you are you're about to experience something new
1: yeah you do you always you know you and i tell you one of the things you you do is you pretty quickly work out you know how things are whether it's um whether it's and generally you know Generally, things are safer than the you'd be led to believe, and you you pretty quickly work out you know it, if it's okay or if it isn't, and um, most of the time it is, and you know any sort of concerns you have you throw them out the window pretty quickly. Or, or in the Congo, you do keep looking over your shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you get a you get a feel for things pretty quickly, and you know that that. What I'd you know I'd go around to the hotel and. Lock lock things away if they need to be locked away, and you know, uh, you know. And if I'm in a if I'm in a country where you've got to have you know a credit card on you to pay for something and some money in your wallet, I would still take most of my cards out of the out of my wallet, and uh, you know, if it's a new place, and leave them in the if there's a room safe in the room safe or whatever. <laughs> I remember a friend, one of our learning planer riders saying what he always did to keep them safe was leave <laughs> leave them in the bin in his room because he knew the bin was one thing that would never be emptied. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, I always finish this podcast
0: the same way. Um, for those that are listening, and often when we do the sports arm of the podcast, it's for the youngsters listening. This applies to everybody, really. Though We're, we are fortunate, a lot of young. People listen with with their families and with their parents. But, Tony, you've taken your passion into a very successful business. For those that are wanting to achieve some success in their lives, whether it's being a travel writer or a footballer or a tennis player or a violinist, from all your wonderful experiences you've had, what advice would you give to those that are hoping to achieve some success?
1: Yeah, it's really easy. Do something you love. You know, you... You know, okay, if you love playing football or tennis, you know, go out. You, you may not become Roger Federer or whatever, but you're still going to enjoy playing tennis. If you're, you know, I, I always think that I, I did meet Bill Gates once. I spent 45 minutes talking with Bill Gates. And I, I don't think he started off, you know, Microsoft because he wanted to be the richest man in the world. He started it off because he loved messing with computers. Um, you know, and then it went on from there. And if, you, if you're if you doing something you love doing, you know, A, you're going to be having fun doing it, and, B, everybody else is going to pick up on it. You know, hey, that person's doing, you know, to, whatever he's doing must be good because he's getting such a kick out of it or she's getting such a kick out of it. You know, they they just love cooking food. Their restaurant must be terrific. Yeah, mm. something you love.
0: It's great advice. i You won't understand how much your time means to me, and I don't want to bang on, but as I said at the start of this, your books have been a tremendous guide, literally, physically, spiritually, emotionally for me. It's provided me with so many opportunities to see the world and really develop a love of travel and places and people and environments and cultures. And now that I can pass that on and share it with my wife and my two kids and still get to the airport and buy the Lonely Planet and start reading it on the plane fills me with a tremendous amount of joy. So thank you for spending some time with me, mate, because it's it's a massive thrill for me, Tone, and I've loved every minute of it. It's been it's been a real treat for me. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Bit of a different episode, that one, but as I said in the intro, an episode really, really close to my heart. I hope you all enjoyed it and it sparks the travel bug in you. Thanks to Tony for telling some cracking stories and for still being so enthusiastic about life on the road. What a legend. I have suggested to Das a few times we need to crank up a travel arm of the podcast. I think it'll be cool. He smiles, shrugs his shoulders and goes back into his editing cave where we only let him out really once a week on Sundays. I reckon that's a yes from Das. I reckon he's keen about the idea. We'll explore it a bit. Until next Tuesday with Pete Murray, a man that drives a combi and plays a guitar. What else is there in life, really? Peace and love.
1: Listener.